Hello, and welcome to the Writers and Illustrators of the Future podcast. This is John Goodwin, your host. This podcast is dedicated to the aspiring writer and artist and will provide inspiration and tips from top professionals in the field. If you've been listening to this podcast or are new to it, I thank you very much. I would also appreciate if you took a moment and followed it on whatever platform you use to listen to your podcasts. This week's guest is Michelle Cobb, the Executive Director of the Audio Publishers Association. I first met around 2008 or so when she was with BBC Audiobooks, which became AudioGo. She is the Director of Audio Publishing of LA Theatre Works, which frequently brings her to Los Angeles. In addition to being the Executive Director of the Audio Publishers Association, she is the publisher of Audiophile Magazine and has become, for all intents and purposes, the spokesperson for the audiobook industry. Welcome, Michelle. Hi, John. Thanks for having me. Yeah, when, when you agreed to, to do this podcast interview, I was really excited about it, but I went back and like, yeah, it's been 2008. It seems like a lot longer, but that's still 13 years. It's true. <laughs> yeah, that's when we started our, our program. And then we, we, I would meet you several places at conventions. You were at the library shows and the book shows, and we'd always run into you. And um, how old is your daughter now? 13. Yeah, so she was just born, and you were carrying around as a baby, going around to all your different meetings, and you'd have her there at in your booth there and we always come by to see her and just watch her as she grew up throughout the years. So pretty amazing. So how'd you originally get started with audiobooks? Well, it's a funny story because I actually was a listener. I worked in theater and did a lot of traveling all over the U.S. and Europe uh, doing different types of theater. And that meant a lot of driving. So I got into audiobooks because I was driving so much. And part of that, I was driving with a touring partner and I didn't love his music and he didn't love my music. So we really needed audiobooks to prevent fighting. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and then when I moved to Los Angeles, I answered an ad for LA Theatre Works and did some evening work selling tickets to their live performances, which are then recorded and become audio works. And they said, hey, you know, you seem to know what's going on. Would you like to come join us? And I did. And I really just became the audio expert. They didn't really have anyone who had studied the industry that much. So I became ensconced in audiobooks and went on to work for the BBC and then started working for myself and went back to LA Theatre Works. So it's all come full circle. Yeah, but then you've become, like I said, you've become the, the voice for the audio industry just with, I mean, you've, you've I mean, I've seen you all over the place, but involved with uh, libraries and we used to put on shows together at the, at the library shows, which was a lot of fun back in the early 2010s or so. Yes. So, just interested in the overall future of audio publishing. So first off, how has it changed since you first got involved? Well, when I first got involved, one of my first jobs at LA Theatre Works was packing cassette tapes and mailing them off to <laughs> libraries. So, huh. you know, I saw the transition go from cassette to CD and eventually into digital. And now the industry is very much a digital industry. We've been doing it for more than 20 years. So we're you know, we're experts in things like metadata, which it, it took a little bit longer for ebooks to catch up to that. Um, so yeah, it's been amazing, and there's been so much growth. 
when I started in the industry, I would have to explain what an audiobook was. Mm-hmm. And you can say, oh, books on tape, you know, when you go to the library. Now I just say, oh, yeah, I do a lot of work in audiobooks, and people tell you what they're listening to. So it's become more ubiquitous in terms of people actually participating and using the format. And it's really just you know, exploded. We've seen as an industry in our sales survey for the APA, nine years of double digit growth in dollars. So that's pretty crazy to have that much growth over nearly a decade now. That's amazing. And it's, what's really amazing with that too, is that I think it was the audio portion of the overall book sales that caused the book industry to, to be showing in the, in the black a couple of years ago. Maybe it was also this past year too. Yeah. Audio has definitely been the growth area for publishing. So we were also really well set up for a change in the pipeline, which happened in the last year mm. when suddenly, you know, you might not be getting a print book in the mail as easily and you might not be able to go to your local independent bookstore to buy a book. So we were already a digital you know, delivery system for books, and that continued. And what was amazing for audiobooks is that we've been recording a lot in homes, so the pipeline to produce continued on as well in a way I think people didn't expect. Not everyone had a home studio. There's still a lot of books that are recorded in professional studios. And we found that balance and made the changes that we needed during the time when we were essentially locked down. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's something I wanted to check out too, is just the change in audio publishing itself, because you talk about home studios. Yes. And there's also ACX, where, which now is this whole thing that Amazon is, or Audible, I guess, is the one that set up originally. Is that right? And then it went, when they got bought by, Audible, by Amazon, then it just became the Amazon recording platform. So it was set up as the Audible or the Audiobook Creation Exchange in 2011. And it's one now of multiple platforms where an individual author can go and essentially do it themselves. It provides a way for a rights holder to get connected with a studio or a narrator or a combination of a narrator and, you know, post-production. So it's really a way to ensure that you can produce and distribute your audiobook. And it was the first in 2011, but now it's one of multiple options. So you, as an independent author, don't have to be afraid about getting your title produced. You can do it yourself. That's way cool. So now make sure you got this straight so that other people listening can also get it straight too, because we have a lot of writers and aspiring writers listening to this to this show. So a person can write, their, they have their own intellectual property, their own IP, and they can then go and record it themselves? Or can they then go, is there like a catalog? I want to get this person to record it and then to offer. How does that work? Sure. So there are a couple of options. If you want to go record it yourself, and let me first warn you, it is not easy. So everyone <laughs> thinks that they can do it. And let me tell you, it takes a lot of skills. There are a lot of big name actors who are great on television and film, but really struggle in the studio when having to read their own words because it's a very different skill. So someone who's an, who is an author who isn't necessarily a performer, it can be a tough transition to record your own words. If you do want to record your own words, I highly recommend that you go into a professional 
professional studio and work with someone who can help you through the process and who knows all the technical requirements. If you don't want to record it yourself, but you do want it recorded, you can go into a platform like ACX or Find Away Voices. You upload your you know, book uh, in the print format, and you can pair yourself with a narrator uh, or a studio to help you produce it. So there's all sorts of different options, but it's all very easy to do in that format. That's great. So now I'm doing this because uh, I know people will be interested in this because it's, as an intellectual property, it's something that can then further how to make money. So how can, how can you generate more income off of your, off your IP? So I know with books, when you go with, um, with uh, an indie, you can get up to 45% of the income from book sales. You do a lot more hustling for it than you do with a, with a big publisher, which is maybe 10 or 15%. But how does that work now with um, audiobook publishing? Because I know it's, I don't know what the numbers are. So if you're doing it yourself, it depends on which platform you distribute from. So each of them has um, their own network of where they're going to distribute to. And it's very, very clear on their websites what royalty percentage you will get as the author. If you are selling your rights to an independent publisher, one that just does audio or one that does audio and print that's looking from, for some additional titles to record, that's a different percentage and that's your kind of selling a sub right. So if you do it yourself, all the royalties are coming to you based on whatever the deal is with the distribution platform. And if you are selling to uh, a publisher who's an audio publisher, they'll provide you with the royalty. Okay. So now, with someone who's like an aspiring writer or a writer who's got his first book out there, is there is there a best a best practice on how to go about doing this thing here? Because a person can come in, oh, I can do, I can read, I can. So a person might have their own idea, you know, maybe they had a dream and they thought, I can do this, but then they haven't quite touched on reality. Is there is there a best practice on how to move into the industry as a, as an author? Yeah, I would say the first thing is, you know, if you really want to read it yourself, first go sit in your bathroom for an hour and try to read your own book. And if it's a struggle to get through things, it's probably not for you. In that case, I would say then go ahead and check out a place like ACX or Find Away Voices where it's one-stop shopping. You put the the, you know, the text in, and they can help you produce it. They can help you find a narrator. You can do auditions. There's a whole way of that. If you want to, if you decide you want to record it yourself, go find a professional studio. So the Audio Publishers Association, where audiopub.org, has a tab that is about, and on there is a getting started page, and that lists all sorts of studios all over the U.S. and Canada and the U.K., so you can find a studio in your area that can help you with that. That's great. And then do you also list on on the um, on your webpage, do you also list like narrators? We don't list narrators, but what we do list are a couple of guides for people who are authors, things to think about when you are deciding how to produce your title. And there's a list of different distributors there. So you can make your book one place, make your audiobook and distribute it elsewhere, or make your audiobook via 
via one method and distribute via one of these companies, there's lots of different options. So if you're thinking about an audiobook, I highly recommend taking the time to go to that page. I absolutely agree with that. Now, you've got also translations. So now you've got the audiobooks, because now audiobooks, not just the United States, but it's growing amazing in other countries, two other foreign languages. So how does that work? So if you've already got the title translated into another language, then you can go to a producer who has different languages. And you can find those, again, if you go to Find Away Voices and say, I would like to have this recorded in English and Spanish, they'll help match you with narrators. Or if you're very industrious and you know a narrator that you really like their work, you can find them usually a website or on social media, and you can reach out to them to ask what it would cost for them to produce it in whatever language that you're looking for. Okay, that's good. Because that's, um, I think it's amazing. It's just, it's growing so fast. So now the APA, Audio Publishers Association, you guys have been very hands-on. And for a while, I was, when I was a board member for uh, a few years, way back when, when it was a uh, not nearly as big as it is now. What types of things does the APA do? What, have, what changes have you seen through, via the APA in the audio industry and what impact your actions have had on that? Sure, that's a great question. So when I started in the industry over 20 years ago, you know, we had, again, probably about 75 publishers that belonged. And then we had some affiliate members, you know, the occasional retailer, producer, narrator, that affiliate group has grown significantly over the years. So we actually have a lot of individual narrators who are members. And if you are a publisher member, you can participate in things like speed dating, where you have an opportunity to see 20 different narrators talking about who they are and getting their contact information and learning a little bit more about them so you know how to cast them uh, as you're thinking about the next book that you're casting. We do a lot of programming. I think when I first became involved with the APA as a volunteer, we had the conference and we had the Audi Awards and there were some educational programs. Now we're doing educational programs, you know, a few per month, some for narrators, some for publishers, and we're doing a lot of stuff virtually because we have members really from all over the world now and the, the tools we have to do virtual events are a lot better than they were 20 years ago. So that's, <laughs> yeah, you know, so that's allowed us to expand our programming. And in fact, we did our conference all virtually this year and had the most people that we've ever had because you don't have any limits in the room in the same way you would at a convention center. Or in transportation costs on getting there. Exactly. Yeah, it's, it's cheaper for people to attend. Um, and it's really easy when you're recording a lot of this stuff to say, oh, I, I've got to miss the four o'clock session, but I can go back and, and watch that a couple weeks later. For sure. So now any particular um, stats on the growth of the industry that, that you can talk about? Because you're before I've been with you, you've been like the queen of stats. <laughs> yes. Well, there, you know, that nine years of double digit growth is really the one that we've been talking about yeah. the most. Um, 71,000 titles were recorded in 2020. That's huge. That's so, huge. you know, the great thing about audio is that 
as more people get invited into learning about the format and appreciating the format, they talk about it, which gets more people interested in it, which makes more sales, which encourages publishers to record more titles. And it becomes this lovely cycle of growth. So more titles being published, those can reach a wider audience, which gets more people interested. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it's all really good news. And what was interesting that we saw in the last 18 months, obviously, there was some concern when people couldn't really go out of their houses very often, that we would lose sales because audiobooks are often thought of as something you do when you commute. Suddenly, not a lot of commuting going on. Right. And the retailers told us anecdotally that they did see initially that drop-off in listening because people were not, you know, going to the car and sitting in the car for an hour and a half in the morning and the evening. But what happened very quickly was that people went back to listening. They just did it at a different time of day. So instead of that morning peak and that evening peak, you were seeing more listening throughout the day and people incorporating listening into their lives in a different way. And frankly, I don't know if you were there, but I think it was in 2010, we did a focus group. Mm-hmm. And yeah. yeah, so if you remember, we were all shocked because everybody at the focus group, you know, we're all behind the glass wall, mm-hmm. but they were all saying, oh yeah, I really like audiobooks to relax. And all of us who work in the industry were like, we're relax. No, we're doing it while we jog. We do it while we do the laundry. We're doing it while we're driving. We thought of it in a multitasking capacity. But the listeners were telling us at that time, no, no, I just like to do it as a way to read that doesn't use my eyes. And what we saw in the pandemic, when suddenly we're all on Zoom all the time, a lot of people were saying that they were choosing to listen to audiobooks just to get away from screens. It's great for kids, right? If you're on Zoom all day for class, but you still want to read a book, it's a great way to just shut your eyes and relax. And for years, our surveys have told us that people are just sitting around and listening. We didn't believe them at first, but <laughs> you know, I think we're finally convinced now. <laughs> Absolutely. That makes, that makes sense too. Also, just all the various, because of the relaxing of of the audiobooks, just the stress of the pandemic too, just, you know, the, yeah. the worry and whatnot. And just anybody that, that makes a mistake of checking into the news regularly just keeps themselves constantly in, in, embroiled in all the, the, the worry. So it makes a really great way to just disconnect from that. And just and audiobooks actually tend to trans, transfer you to another time and location better than just reading a book can as well. Absolutely. You've got the the narrator helping you through the words as they're performing them. They're adding a layer. You've got a lot of things like full cast recordings where you've got sound effects and music. Those things I actually don't like to listen to when I drive because I'm like, wait, was my phone ringing? Was that a gunshot? Mm-hmm. Um, but those are really great for listening and just sitting at home and sort of having that experience in mm-hmm. your ears. So it's been a, a fight between what's the number one location for listening between the car and the home. And the home was winning by a lot for a couple of years. And then the in-dash car players and cars started to get a better experience. You didn't necessarily have to plug in your phone. You would just bring your phone in and it would pick up from where you left off. Um, and so people started to do more listening in the car. That changed in 2020, and it'll be interesting to see what happens. But yeah, the the home, relaxing, and 
getting out of the head is a big part of listening. Yeah. Of course, everyone seems to like to listen to murder and mayhem, but uh, <laughs> that's better than the news, I guess. <laughs> yes, yes. So any particular age groups that um, do better? With, and then we you got the age groups listening, but also genres by age group too, if you've got that kind of uh, drill down. Well, what we've seen in the last decade is that as podcasts have risen and that younger generation is listening to podcasts, they're also listening to audiobooks. So the average age of the listener has gone down. We don't measure what genres they're listening by age. Uh, we just didn't know that mystery, suspense, thriller is always very much at the top. <laughs> mm -hmm. Got it. Yeah, I did some research a few years ago in Mexico and for, for audiobooks and found they don't really do a lot of audiobooks. They do podcasts. They do the audio on podcasts and that's how they uh, monetize their, their audiobooks is via podcasts on there. Is that, is that like a Mexico only type thing or is that also happening elsewhere for monetizing purposes? Here in the U.S., we've been built kind of on that credit subscription model. So you get one credit per month and you can listen, pick out your title and listen. What we're starting to see now is that as podcasts and audiobooks kind of developed and grew together, the retailers are bringing them together into the same location. So, for instance, Spotify and Apple and all of these different vendors mm -hmm. are selling both. You know, podcasts are generally free and ad supported and audiobooks are generally paid for in some way, whether it be an a la carte sale, a credit subscription, or an unlimited subscription, kind of like your Netflix model. All of those things exist. And I think it's getting um, a little closer together. So we're starting to see stuff that would typically have been a podcast now available in an audiobook retailer and vice versa. I get it. Now, it used to be, like you said, with your cassettes and then or actually records beforehand at libraries and then it went to cassettes. And then um, I guess it never really had the eight tracker or the four track tapes on audiobooks. I don't think. <laughs> I think there might have been some A-track before the cassette was big, but yeah. not much. <laughs> yeah, and then and then the CD, and now it's gone to the digital. But in terms of the the uh, system, the programs, you've got the the credits, which is what I guess was originally made popular through Audible. I yes. think they're the first one that did it. But then I you got the unlimited subscription, which was that started coming to play maybe half a dozen years or so ago, and it's, it's growing. Is that kind of, is that going to take over the uh, the credit system, or how's that going? Yeah, I, I think that's the, the question is, you know, when will that transition happen? I think it's hard to imagine that we're going to maintain a credit system in a consumer world where everyone is more used to subscription, but you never know. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think we, we have a lot of subscription services now. You know, you used to have cable, right? And you have one, one subscription to cable and you get all your channels and now you have seven apps instead. So I think there's going to be a lot of movement in the lack in the next decade of how people are buying and where and what that model is. Uh, and I'm not a retailer. And uh, so I can't really say what's going to win. Mm -hmm. um, but I do think everyone's taking a look at the different models and trying to figure out what can ensure that the original rights holder gets a good living off of the way it's being sold. Yeah. Cause that's, that's a key issue on this whole thing with whoever owns that property. Right. That they're not ripped off and they can actually reap the benefits of their of their work, their creative work, because that's what they do. 
you know? Exactly. So, um, yeah, one thing we've been working on for a while for our stuff, because we've not released anything for since 2016, but we're about ready to start up again. We've been working on an app. So we have everything below it on the app and a, and a new dedicated uh, site for the app to be able to to download. Is that something that's being done more and more by by publishers? I, Robin suggested Robin Witten suggested that to me. Gosh, ten years or so ago, after a, after Book Expo America, once in New York, we were at a deli, and she said, "You need to do this," and I said, "Okay." And so we've been working on it, and then she just reminded me of it recently. You know, remember when I told you that? And so yeah, we're about ready to launch it. So. Is that something that's becoming more and more a, a thing or or what? I think a lot of publishers have tried an individual app. It really depends on your market and your content. Uh, they are maintaining an app is very expensive. Uh, and it's how much marketing capacity do you have as well? So mm -hmm. what's great about working with retailers that have their own apps is you can be the creator of the content and you put it up and you can do some marketing around it, but it's really all the, the work of fulfilling the order and making sure the customer is happy, that's falling to the retailer. So it really becomes a question of how do you want to spend your time and your dollars as a publisher or as a rights holder? And I think an app is a great opportunity for certain publishers and not for others. Got it. Okay. So now with, with this, all the transition going more and more digital bookstores. So, yeah. so what's, what's the deal with, what do you, what's the basic tenancy right now? Cause it seems like audiobooks and bookstores is becoming um, um, a long lost grandchild. That's going to become not just a distant relative, but you know, just not even a thing anymore. Well, actually, there's a company called Libro FM that does a lot of work with independent bookstores. And so they saw, of course, during the pandemic, when a lot of bookstores could not be open for physical, you know, browsing, a way that they could sell specifically audiobooks was to work with a company like Libro that would let them sell the audiobook off their website. So you could be supporting an independent bookstore and still having a great audio experience. And they, as a bookstore, don't have to maintain the app themselves, but they can partner for a great customer service experience. Oh, that's great. So then, because that was a concern, because obviously I'm very much in favor of the life cycle of bookstores continuing. Yes. So, so uh, um, but then you see like, as it gets more and more digital, it's like, why go to, why go to a bookstore to buy a digital book? You know, when you can just click a button, you download it from whatever you use as your favorite source. It's true, but who doesn't like to browse, right? I wanted to buy an office chair the other day. And so I went into the store, I looked around and got a chance to sit in the chair. It's the same with the book. I like to look at the cover. I like to open it up. And then, you know, I might just stand in the store and buy the audiobook digitally right there. That's a good option. So they can, but you can... Can you get it so that the store gets credit for it? Oh, yeah, exactly. So you basically are going to the store's website, and although it's back-ended by Libro FM, the store is getting a portion of the sale, and you're supporting your local bookstore even as you're listening to an audiobook. That's, that's a great data to have there. Let's see. Now, on Audible became the big gorilla in the industry. How is it evolving now? Because there's been a lot of other players and working hard to be able to fight the fight. And so now they're like not they're, they're standing up now in, in the in the field of competition. 
Yeah, so I always talk about, you know, 10 years ago when I would put up a slide at a presentation that I was doing, I'd say it would have Audible and Overdrive. So Overdrive in the library market and Audible in the retail market. And now when I put up that slide, we have 40 different logos on it. And that's not all of the different retailers for the library and retail market. So there are a lot more options for people now as the market grows, it gives an opportunity for more retailers and library vendors to get involved. And they're seeing the growth of audio, so they are getting involved. That's great. And where, where would a person go to find that? Because I know if you just Google audiobooks, it'll, just, it'll have like the top two or three, but you said 40. I wouldn't see that looking for. Is there, where would they go to be able to find these different vendors? Sure. Well, of course, Googling is one way, um, you know, checking out your local library. A lot of these vendors are international. So if you are in a country like Sweden, you have the option of Storytel. Um, but really, you know, checking out your local bookstore is a great way to go because then your local bookstore is getting a portion of that. There's audiobooks.com, there's Downpour, there's, you know, lots of different vendors for your library market as well. So I don't know a good way to get a list of those uh, vendors yeah. in, in particular, but keep your eyes peeled. Yeah, because some things you, you just get into the habit of, okay, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. So you just kind of like, I'm still just doing the way I always get my books or my audiobooks, and it's become very easy. But it doesn't mean it's the best. Right. And now with places like Spotify getting into the audiobook market, so you might be there as a music listener and not someone that's listened to audiobooks and run across an audiobook. And so the fact that more retailers are making audiobooks a part of their offering means that you'll be able to find audiobooks in more places. And again, if you're not an audiobook listener currently, you'll have a chance to have more exposure. That's good. So, um, what can the APA, what can the Audio Publishers Association do for an author who would like to see their work made into an audio? It's like we talked about it a little bit, but just straight point blank. So should an author become a member, an associate member? Or what, what can they do to better utilize that resource? Well, first, first thing, and it's free, is go to that Getting Started page and start figuring out how you want to be involved in the audiobook industry. It's not particularly expensive to join. And by joining, you will have access to educational events that we're doing and to the full research so that you can see what's going on in the industry. You also get discounts to the conference and to the very important audio awards if you want to submit your title to be considered for an award. So it's not a huge lift to become involved um, in terms of dollars. And then there's plenty of networking opportunities. So you can meet narrators, you can become involved in a committee and get to know people. And I found that we are very collegial as an organization, as an industry. So getting involved and coming to some events is a great way to gain knowledge, to meet other people, and to develop a circle of people who can help answer your questions. That's great. Now, the you have your, every year have your annual, the APAC, the Audio Publishers Association Convention or Conference. Conference, yes. So <laughs> is that going to be now both in-person and, and uh, virtual in the future? 
So in 2022, our plan is to do an in-person conference in New York in early March. Um, we don't know beyond that. I personally think that there's a lot of value to having some years be a digital conference and some years be in-person. It's a different experience, but it's certainly equalizing to be virtual. Um, the networking isn't quite as good. So doing both seems to be a good idea. Uh, ultimately, it's up to our board of directors to make that decision, but that's certainly my recommendation. And we're a small staff, so doing a hybrid show is probably not a great option for us. Right. Um, you you want to give our time and attention to the one experience you're having at that moment. Right. Now, do you record the individual panels? Because sometimes there's really good panels that would be appropriate for somebody to listen to. We do if it's virtual. We don't in person, in large part because um, of the venue that we've been using that has not been a great option or experience. And frankly, it's very expensive. Yeah. We've tried to keep the cost of having the conference be reasonable. Um, we all know that costs have been going up this year, so it'll be interesting to see um, what price point we have to come in at in 2022. Um, but because the other thing that we're really striving for in person is an interactive experience. I don't find that those do well when they're recorded, right? right? So, you know, again, it's it's not something that we've been recording except when we do it virtually. Right, okay. And we, do a, we yeah. do a lot of virtual events now. Yes. And if you join, you have access to everything that we've recorded in our, you know, the back end of our database. Yeah, for sure. So now on the... Um you're also the publisher for um, Audiophile Magazine, and looked in there ab about, and it has Michelle Cobb, and it has your favorite audiobook is Blindness. Yes. So, <laughs> so how is it that's your favorite audiobook? So it's a book that has very, very little punctuation, and it's not <laughs> one that I find is easy to read with your eyes. So I happen to decide, oh, I'm going to listen to this. And it's a fantastic listen. Jonathan Davis, who narrates it, does an amazing job. And it was one of those books, it's not particularly long, it's maybe six or seven CDs when I listened to it. And I didn't want it to end. So I would listen to it for like 20 minutes and the rest of my drive to and from work, I'd turn it off so that the experience would last a little bit longer. <laughs> well, that's, that's quite a testament then to the quality of, the, of that story then that that would have you yeah, it's a great book. Sacrifice to, to do that to make <laughs> yeah. it go on. So um, what do you see as some of the biggest moments in the audio industry, so, you know, either from when you got started or even that led up to something that you learned about prior to your starting, then however many, if it's five or 10 or two or whatever it is, any particular big moments that you've observed in the audio industry? Well, that transition to digital, you know, we got kind of a slow start, but when the iPod came out, that was a big driver of getting people to listen. And then if you start to look at where audiobooks, again, really found a rise, it was right around the push around the smartphone. So suddenly, I who travel a lot did not have to carry 12 or 16 CDs with me. I'm carrying a computer in my hand and I can have 12 or 16 audiobooks on it, no problem. So that's something that I think has had a big impact. And frankly, you know, the do-it-yourself platform of ACX really helped. Suddenly people who were not necessarily working with an audio publisher, but wanted their title to be produced in audio, had the opportunity to do that. 
And, you know, the last 10 years, it's been like, let's just publish more. Let's publish more. Let's publish more. How have we done that? And a lot of that has been through the digital realm, right? Mm -hmm. Being able to be sent a script instead of via FedEx ripped apart by, you know, photocopied and ripped (laughs) apart. It's coming as an electronic file. And if you can record in your house, that's had a big impact. So not having to get on a train and go into the city and, you know, spend two hours commuting. People can record and still have a day job. They can record around their children going to school. There's a lot of flexibility with the home studio that's allowed the industry to be more efficient. Yeah, now that's that's actually brings up a good point then because the home studio... I mean, one of my things I had when I was on the board and that was at a transition period, ACX was just starting then and there was a concern about audiobooks still being a relatively new experience for a lot of people. And so wanting that first experience to be good, because if it's a bad first experience, it's kind of like, oh, no, I've, I've done that and I'm not really interested to yes. be able to avoid that. So how is that? Obviously, that transition has been overcome, but the quality of home recording, is that an issue? It certainly can be if you don't have a professional microphone and a professional setup and you haven't recorded many audiobooks, then you're probably going to be struggling a bit in terms of getting the right quality. But what's great is we are, in fact, a decade in to people having home studios. So they have acquired whisper rooms and booths that are quite soundproof. They've required, they've acquired the right microphones and the software to do this. And Again, you can record that at home and you can digitally send it to a professional editor who can do a great job with any cleanup. You know, maybe you heard the ice cream truck that was coming through before. (laughs) Um, You know, if I'm in a studio at my house, I have some soundproofing and then the the post-production team can do a good job of anything that bled through or clean up or if I'm popping my peas too much. So it, it takes a number of people being involved in the production, but it's really about having the best technologies to ensure that the quality maintains. Right. So then is there any particular um, guideline or estimate? I'm like, what's going to be the cost of producing your own audiobook? Or like, is it done by hour that it gets done or is it done by project? How, how can they work? Know that they're, that they're not being ripped off, but as it's with their, as a proper estimate. Sure. So we've, generally find the industry works on what's called per finished hour. And you can calculate that. Let's use an easy number. So if your book is 90,000 words, we say it's approximately 9,000 words per finished hour. So a 90,000 word title would be 10 finished hours of recording. And the pricing for that per finished hour has a really wide range. On the do-it-yourself platforms, there's the option to split the proceeds with your narrator and have no upfront cost or to pay your narrator a small stipend that they can send to their post-production team. Um, So your costs have a really wide range. If you need a lot of technical expertise and a full cast, things like that, you can go into a professional studio. Those productions become more pricey. Uh, But you'll just want to work with whatever method you have, whether it be do-it-yourself or studio uh, or directly with the narrator, to get the complete per-finished-hour cost, which should include 
both the narration cost and the post-production cost. And then you'll be able to estimate your title based on the length. Got it. So now if you're going to be doing this yourself, what guarantee do you have that anybody's going to even see it? Well, that's really going to fall to you. So, you know, it is a lot about marketing. It's not enough to just take a title and put it out there and hope that someone gets it. Field of dreams. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) So you have a couple of options. Uh, We do find that it can be helpful to bring out your audiobook simultaneously with the print and or ebook. So you're talking about the title, you're making it available in all formats, so people who are reading the title have their choice. Eyes, ears, digital, whatever it is. That's one way to do it. Mm-hmm. Or you can say, I'm going to produce the title, say, as an ebook, and then I'm going to see how it does, what kind of, you know, following I get. And if you have a strong following, then you can produce it as an audiobook because it's another chance to talk about the title and to get all those people that have read it maybe as an ebook to talk about the audiobook. So it's another opportunity to market. But as with anything else, there are no guarantees in life. <laughs> exactly. So now um, anything else? Because I, I quickly divert us over here, but any other big momentous moments in the uh in the history of audiobook publishing? Well, I, th- I mean, I think that was a lot. You didn't ask me that I had one more. <laughs> so is there anything, because I know when, and this was earlier on as a kid, I used to listen to, I had my record, I put it on, and I had my little book. And then it would, it would a narrator would be telling, like maybe it was Peter and the Wolf or something like that. And it'd go, right. when it's time to turn the page. Um, yes. Is that type of stuff still a, a thing? Is it just, um, or is that something that happened when I was a kid growing up? So that's what you're talking about is called a read-along. So you get the book experience and the audiobook together. Oftentimes you've got that page turn signal for one recording, and then you, you have the same recording without the page turn for as you progress as a reader and can figure out when to turn the page yourself. So I think that was one of the big questions. How would that type of material translate into the digital world? So still a lot of CDs sold, even though it's not the primary format, you know, that the book and CD kit. But we're also seeing books that have an MP3 player built in, like the Wonder Book from Findaway. Mm-hmm. So it's actually got the audiobook and the print book all together in one package. And you don't have to worry about losing the CD, which is nice. Additionally, there's a lot of that that happens digitally. So you might be having the ebook experience uh, in an app, and it's got the audiobook as well. So I think Children's has struggled a little bit more in that transition to digital because we haven't had a ton of places to acquire children's titles from in audio that have been really you know, safe. Mm-hmm. I always use the same joke, but if you go onto Audible and you're there with your child and you search for, say, the cocky rooster, right, that could be a children's book or it could be erotica. So there are retailers like Epic 
or Tails to Go, which works with schools, or Pinna. And those are safe spaces that only have children's materials. And those are great options to send a kid to and to know that they can listen and be free and not worry about what kind of rooster that they've heard about. <laughs> we've been searching for. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so one thing I was curious about is, again, moving forward with, with audios, is there going to be any, or is there anything that's been developing with, you got the audiobook, but then going into the visual. So you start off with the audiobook, but then it actually either can, either CGI this automatically gets triggered by sounds or that, that makes a video experience as well as audio experience. We're starting to see all of those things come together. There were things called enhanced eBooks, mm -hmm. which people thought would kind of be the big thing for a while. So it's the eBook. It might have video links. It might have the audio as well. I don't think anything has done quite so well as just the audiobook on its own, in large part because we're trying to escape screens, right? right. So for children's stuff, pairing the audio and the print, together is something parents want. They don't necessarily want the added extras of lots of videos. Are there products out there that exist? Absolutely. Um, but I do think it's so much about the words and the performance that we are much more focused on the experience that you don't have to be looking at, at anything, except yeah. maybe if you want to kind of whisper sync along, as it were. Yeah. Yeah. When we were doing our audiobooks with, uh, with Galaxy Audio, we, all of our stuff is the format you don't like, is the, uh, <laughs> is the radio drama category of, with all the different actors. And oh, I, I'm, I like that. I just don't like to listen to it in the car. Because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we would have all the actors in a studio together recording. And it was like the old radio dramas where they would play off each other and be a lot more, um, there'd just be a lot more excitement and intensity or just bring everything up about, you know, 20% of a notch on that stuff. Exactly. And that's, that's what LA Theatre Works does. They actually record live in front of an audience in most cases. So you can hear the audience react. And I love that experience of having all the different people playing the different voices. And, you know, that, that full cast experience as someone who loves theater, that's perfect for me. Mm -hmm. I just have to be careful to <laughs> not, not choose something with gunshots and phones in the car. <laughs> yeah. You know, we had one time the, um, review editor for library journal because he loved our stuff we got great everyone that came out got great reviews because he wanted to listen to him himself but he said one time when he was going out it was one of the mysteries he went out there on his porch lit a cigar and was ready to start listening to it and then all of a sudden it's like oh no it's raining but it was the right. audiobook it was a, <laughs> the, a bit downpour in the in the story then he looked out like it's bright and everything he's like oh no it was, it was the story itself that was doing that so because that's something that for us was in was an important thing with our audiobooks because we had a like 150,000 sound effects we pulled from. And if we didn't have it, I remember going to New York once <clears throat> with uh, a sound engineer and we recorded the sound of the taxis on Fifth Avenue. We recorded the subway, you know, New York, yeah. and it sounds different than other subways. And the New York taxis is its own, it's its own sound, you know, so we would do that. And, um, and we are seeing in general more of that being done, kind of original works and things created for audio that use sound effects and music and a, a full cast. Mm -hmm. It's a lot more expensive to produce. Yeah. So I don't think it'll ever be the majority of the market, but it's such a fabulous listening experience. Why would you not want that? Yeah. So that's 
I mean, that's what we were able to, to do, and we did it because we wanted because the stories are written in the 30s and 40s. We wanted to go back to that format that was most popular then, which is radio theater, which is what was yeah. done. But now with with a you got a cast of of um, or actually no, you have a, a narrator, and you have some that do like the original uh, library um, for the uh, for the uh, visually impaired, you know, with yes. the straight. It's not monotone, but it's a straight read through without the various inflections. And then you've got some of the really hot shot narrators that can do all the various voices and the guy yeah. impersonating the girls and the girls doing the guys and all the different inflections and stuff. And then you've got, to me, was the best one ever was um, when uh, Harry Potter was done and just the story of how all those different voices um, that he that he did. He had to write down notes on it so he know, knew who yeah. it was as he was going through. It was just Dale. It's such a skill, too, Jim Dale. Yeah. You know, to be able to, like, transition, it's yeah. kind of interesting to watch. You think maybe someone is in the booth, like, waving their arms and doing all these different things for the different characters. And because of the microphone sensitivity, it's actually very, very small changes. So if you watch someone record, you might see them on one character, like, raise their shoulders slightly or bring their shoulders in or sit up more straight. It's a really, really interesting skill that they have to be able to play all those characters and to remember enough of it <laughs> to switch to the right voice. Yeah. You know? yeah. We just, I watched that too. Cause we had, we had a lot of uh, Disney actors that came in and, and did our audiobooks for us. And it was just amazing watching them all perform together. And they, and they're saying, I, I love, being with him because I learned so much from him. I was like, what? You're amazing. And they were just talking about how much they learned from all these little, like you said, these innuendos and inflections. Yes. And the, it is so great to be able to perform off of someone and to have a genuine reaction. When you are playing all the different characters in a scene, you know how you're going to say it, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's not a surprise. Yeah. Um, but that's, yeah, that's why I think full cast is a great listening experience. Yeah, and that's like I said, that's what we didn't. You mentioned earlier in, in this interview about the um, one of the big things that the APA does, Audio Publicization done, is the Audis. And when we won the Audi Award for our, our Battlefield Earth, that was for me that was like such a a special you know moment. But talk a little bit about then about uh, the Audis, what that is, and why it's such an important event for the audio industry. We are really taking the time to go through a very rigorous judging process to ensure that the quality audiobooks are rising to the surface. If you win an Audi, your title has been listened to by a minimum of nine judges. So that's a lot of people. And they're all doing it out of the goodness of their hearts, which is really very generous of them. But it gives us an opportunity to recognize the wonderful marriage of great text and beautiful performances and to highlight the work that we all do every day, right? It's not just enough to say, oh, we've recorded all of these titles and we've put them out there and consumers have liked them. You want to be able to celebrate which titles have stood out in some way and to recognize all the millions of hours that go into producing anything, even if it's not an award winner, mm -hmm. someone has spent time lovingly crafting this title. So we do want a chance to take a moment as an industry to celebrate each other, and not everything is going to be a nominee or a winner, but we're really celebrating all the work that everyone does together to keep the industry growing. 
Yeah, which is which is really important, and it's good that you're the ones that are kind of like knitting it together and and kept it because there was some definite transition issues that was happening as it was as it was a growing thing, and there was um, it, it just needs someone that can actually guide the ship to keep it going forward. In fact, I remember uh, it's probably been it's been several years. You came out and you presented an award on behalf of I think it was Audiophile Magazine to Elron Hubbard for the uh, audiobooks and in celebration, I think it was our, no, it was the 10th anniversary of the, of the release of our stories from the golden age. That's what it was. Right. Yeah. And um, it was great. I'm glad you were able to come here and see our offices, but it was, we were trying to do something because at that point, the full cast, the, the radio theater was kind of a new thing get, getting into it. It wasn't a whole lot done because you said it was expensive and it, it yeah. is, but we had so many, I mean, the fact that the reviews and the awards paid off on that thing because it, it definitely was, and they still do really well as as audiobooks. But that was great when um, you know that recognition that, that the both audiophile and the APA is able to make towards audiobooks because it, it helps to grow it. I know Robin used to tell me earlier on, you know, the high tide raises all boats, and that's been being said by people for eons. But she was the first one that said to me where it actually impinged. I went, "Wow, that's really good." So. You know, that's something that the APA has very much been a key part of. So you've grown it quite a bit since you've been the um, executive director. You went from being president to executive director. So president was a voted in thing and executive director is now you're, there's all the, the glory is all gone now. Now you just, you're. Yes. You're the yeah. Just do world. all now the you, tasks. You, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the president can come in like, okay, everybody, let's. Cheer! And now the executive director is there when it's making sure that the script is ready and that here's all the stuff and make sure everything gets out to the, to the votes and stuff like that. So what types of things do you see is going to be happening down the road that you've got planned for the audiobook industry? Well, you know, we've certainly seen in the last year that the virtual events have been really helpful. We did the audience virtually, right? It's probably not our first choice, but it was a great way for people all over the world to be able to see it and experience it as it was occurring. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, I think in general, what we are trying to do, and we're a team, like I'm not on my own by any stretch. Um, it's three part-time people who are working together with the volunteers to say, okay, what needs changing? What do we need to be reactive to? So something that we've been working on the past couple of years is that more authentic voices were needed in the industry. So um, we've been working on diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives because one of the things was people didn't necessarily know that audiobooks were an option. We've probably been helped by the pandemic there, right? Because <laughs> actors who, who were normally doing stage or film or television, they looked around for the past year and was like, uh, what am I going to do to make a living? And one of those things that you can do to make a living is set up a home studio and start recording. You can still do a television job or a theater job and then come home at night and record for a couple hours. So there's an option when other things are not happening to be able to make a living. And we've started to, you know, it's, it's been a number of years now that we've been trying to go out in the community and invite people in. Uh, but it really has accelerated as people realized, oh, I'm a performer. Is there another way for me to work that doesn't involve me leaving my house? Audiobooks are great. Great choice. <laughs> Absolutely. Now, you said there's like 71,000 uh, audiobooks produced last year. Yes. How many of those were like home studio versus the, the big publishers, the audio publishers? Is there a 
we don't measure that because we're a trade association and because we have antitrust issues. Everything for us is aggregated data. And also we don't ask the publishers how many were recorded in the studio versus how many were recorded at home, um, especially in the last year. Probably a lot more were recorded at home <laughs> than think, in the year prior. Think, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay, so... But the quality is definitely increasing on the on the home studios, and that people, and it's to put together a home studio. Is that they're talking like ten thousand dollars, fifteen hundred dollars? It it really depends on you know what your area is like. If you are in a in a city, you're going to need a higher level of sound protection than you are if you live out in the country where there's no one around. Mm -hmm. uh, if you live in the suburbs and your neighbor likes to mow their lawn a lot, you might have to have a higher level of sound protection or you might be choosing to record more when the dark you yeah. know when it's dark so yeah. that you're not you're not hearing those things um it's also it's not just about the booth but also the microphone and the software so many many people used pro tools for a long time we now see different softwares that are not as expensive like audacity used to record so I recommend if you're thinking about setting up a home studio, you work with an engineer who understands the placement of the microphone and the soundproofing to really set up what's going to work best for you. Original home studios were people in their closets, and we certainly heard some of that in the pandemic. Not the best choice, but sometimes you just have to go with that, you know. Yeah. Does GarageBand, is that something that gets used or is that... Yeah, so all sorts of yeah, all of the different programs get used and everybody has their comfort level. I would say if you are technophobic, this is not the job for you because you do have to um understand software to a certain extent. But the other thing we saw during the pandemic was that uh studios were virtually going into your computer. So you could have an engineer in California and you could be at home in Montana, and they could actually be manipulating the program for you. So even if you were a technophobe, as long as you could get online and have them, you know, VPN into your computer, then you'd, uh, you could just do your you performing do. thing. Yeah. So technology in general has really helped. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And what used to be really expensive is a lot cheaper now with and the more yes. technology that exists, the more you can actually do with pushing a button. Exactly. Okay, great. So one more time then. So for someone to uh, find out about the Audio Publishers Association, where do they go again? Audiopub.org. Good. And then if they want to see some of this amazing um, publications that you uh, produce for the audiobook industry with uh, Audiophile Magazine, they go where for that? Audiophile with an F file, like, you know, uh, paper files, audiophilemagazine.com. Good. And they can find Michelle wherever they go in the world of audiobooks. <laughs> that's, that's right. You, you might be uh, regretting it if you Google me, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, this has been great. I very much appreciate this chance to talk with you, Michelle. It was a lot of fun, John. It's always good to see you. And thank you for listening. Subscribe to the Writers and Illustrators of the Future podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We've also been syndicated on the United Public Radio Network, where you can find these podcasts as well by just typing in Writers of the Future. Again, I highly recommend you read the Writers of the Future series. These are, after all, who our judges have selected as the best of the best new writers and artists. They can be found at writersofthefuture.com, at Amazon, or wherever you get your books. 
Writers and Illustrators of the Future are contests created by Elrond Hubbard to provide a means for the aspiring writer and artist to be seen and acknowledged. It is free to enter and open to amateur short story writers and artists of science fiction or fantasy. Again, thank you very much, Michelle. Thanks, John.